The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 12. This message was given during the evening service on September 11, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. The introductory statement for tonight's sermon, which the sermon title is, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering. Ongoing part numbers just change. The title stays the same until we do all four marks. Uh, but the introductory statement says, when optional trumps real necessity while masquerading as false necessity. In the culture, in your note sheet, our culture has a problem. Here it is, write it down. Most people cannot tell a need from a want. Most people cannot tell a need from a want. In other words, they can't tell what is necessary from what is optional. Really, most people we run into in our society do not know what is necessary. I trust and hope that you all know there are only four real needs on this planet. Not talking about spiritual, talking about physical needs. Can we name those four? Food, number one. Shelter, number two. Clothing, number three. And That's not food. This isn't food. Water. Food and water. Okay, so those are the only four. You can write them down. Those are your only four needs on this planet. Food, water, shelter, clothing. Now what do Americans come along and do? Oh, they've, they've got their list. I've heard all of these. I'm going to share you what a pastor told me about 30, 32 years ago. He considered an absolute need in his life, an IFCA pastor. I can talk about him because he's in heaven now. But uh, look, this is a list as far as society. I need a cell phone. How many teenagers say that? A vehicle. Now, a vehicle may, I suppose, be a life-enriching need if you can't get to where you're going and you live out in the boondocks. But I see a lot of people taking buses, so I don't know. That one doesn't qualify as a life-sustaining need. Um, I need to own a home. How many young people in our society feel they just can't rent the rest of their lives? That's a waste of money. i got to own a home. It's a need. The list goes on and on. Retirement money is a need. Yearly pay raises are a need. Discretionary income for fun is a need. Vacations are needs. And on and on and on. Needs and wants are confused. One that can occur on any given Friday night in this country or Saturday night could be this. Honey, I really need a pizza tonight. That actually may be one I would agree with. <laughs> I think I could find a verse that would support that one. Americans are constantly moving optional wants into the needs category. You can write that under in the culture. Americans are constantly moving optional wants into the needs category. This is what drives whining. And Are you going to preach a sermon? <laughs> Amen, brother. Hey, this sermon bores me, so if you've got a better one at the podium back there, I'll turn it over to you, really. <laughs> oh my goodness, don't tell me your back is worse again. Oh, I'm so sorry, Ryan. I'm, please pray for him on that. Um, he mentioned that. Pardon? Well, that's good, but I just hate to see that, so just keep him in prayer. But I just I got my hopes up, you know, it's like... <laughs> 
didn't really want to preach this tonight, but that's okay. So um, this is what, right under the culture, when you move options into needs, it increases whining, okay, and discontent. That's what it does. The more things you think you need, besides food, water, shelter, clothing, the more you whine. I was sitting in an IFCA regional meeting with fellow pastors. This is way before I had two jobs, so I could sit in on these committees. And they all knew John Stevens because I was on all these committees, but now they don't know who I am. Uh, John Stevens at Eastside Bible Church. Who's he? I've been around the IFCA stuff because of my other job. And I was sitting there, and I don't know how we got into the subject, but this was like uh, 30 years ago. And this pastor, we got talking about money. And this pastor said, well, I absolutely could not survive. I have to have at least thirty-seven dollars to $40,000 a year. Now, that was 30 years ago, and I was sitting there, and I think the income I had here was like 23000 before taxes. And I was looking at this guy like that. So that pastor thought he needed a pretty good hefty pay raise. Probably with cost of living, he would be saying today, I can't survive without um, seventy, eighty thousand, maybe. Remember that missionary that came through here that remain unnamed? And uh, uh, Bible-related ministries that uh, Fred Stonehouse is in in retirement de declared that uh, this couple could not live in France as a young couple with no children without 96,000 U.S. dollars. And by the way, they're not even close to reaching that, and they're still trying. I think that was six, seven years ago. They're never going to reach it. The, the medium income in France for indigenous French, I think, is 46000 today. I think the Luxembourg is the highest per capita income on average in uh, Britain, not in Britain, in Europe, and that's like around 63000 Bible-related ministries wanted this couple to have 96000 Well, I wasn't going to take that standing down, so I contacted Bible, not Bible-related ministries, I'm sorry, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, sorry, Bible-related ministries is Dave Bauer. Okay, sorry, this is why I shouldn't be preaching tonight. Fog, fog. So, um, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, so I contacted them, and basically the response I got secondhand was, who's this guy, John Stevens, and has he ever been to France, and what does he know? Wow, that's a great answer, isn't it? Thank you so much for that. It just made me so happy that night. Anyways, uh, so you can see this whole idea of optional becomes necessity, wrecks everything, right? Okay. But in the church, number two, we ironically have reversed those. Our problem isn't optional becoming necessity, even though I gave you a couple examples. Our problem is that, is the opposite what we're doing is we're taking what is necessary and making it optional. Write that down. We're moving what is really necessary in the Bible and making it optional. What is necessary in the Bible? Write it down. To obey all commands. Okay? To obey all commands. That is necessary, right? Would we agree on that? Of course, not the Old Testament commands just for Israel that are no longer enforced in the New Testament. So in the church, we're reversing these. Society, optional is becoming necessary. I need all of this stuff. And I think Sue and uh, Rebecca could certainly attest to the fact that you're getting new employees and they, they want the whole bundle right up front, don't they? And if they don't get everything they want and everything is heaven on earth, 
You know, Sue tells me about this, and Rebecca, I'm sure you could amen it. They just quit over a whim, right? And I think we've all run into stuff like that, sure. But in the church, necessary becomes optional. Let me give you some examples. Now, let me preface these. Nobody here or anywhere else on this planet should say amen to any of these. I'm helping you out. Okay, so just keep the amens to yourself, even if you believe it. How about this one? Yes, telling the truth is necessary in the Bible, but in certain areas it is optional to obey and right for me to lie to others so that they won't be hurt. How about another one? Yes, it is necessary as Christians to stand for truth, but it might become optional when telling the truth would cost me my job. Yes, I know that God says he hates to divorce and hates divorce and it is necessary never to divorce. But staying married is optional, is it not, if my spouse leaves me or verbally abuses me or makes my life miserable? How about another one? Yes, it's necessary to serve Christ. Yes, we're commanded to do that. Amen. But it's optional if I'm too old. I don't have what it takes. God understands. Or this one. Yes, it's necessary to study the Bible. Amen. The Bible commands us to do that. Study to show yourself approved unto God. You know what I'm going to say next, right? So I'll do it together as of course. But, there you go. But studying the Bible is optional if I'm too busy or I'm too tired from work. Yes, I know it's necessary to evangelize. Amen. Great commission. Amen. But it becomes optional if it will offend somebody or if I don't know how to give out the gospel. Or this one. Yes, it's necessary to love others. But, very good, it is optional if somebody hates me. Yes, I know, uh, John, you'll say Luke 6.34 says, love your enemies. And yes, I know that also applies to divorce, ironically. But let's not quibble over non-essentials, shall we? Turn the page. Yes, it's necessary to submit to my husband, boss, government. But I didn't do the alto. It is optional if what is asked of me is unreasonable or if he or they are morons. Yes, it's necessary to repent and receive Christ as Lord, but it's optional if the evangelist leaves it out. I think they can still be saved without that. Again, I had an IFCA pastor who told me that years ago. So I said to him, so there's two ways of salvation. You didn't know what I was talking about. I've told you this before. I remember it. What do you mean, John? I said, well, you're telling me either, you know, you don't have to repent. So I don't have to repent? No, you don't have to repent. So then if I repent, is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. So I can repent or not repent. That's two options. No. Uh, how about receiving him as Lord and Savior? I, do I have to receive him as, you don't have to receive him as Lord. You can just receive him as Savior. Oh, okay, so if I leave out the Lord, then I can get saved. Yeah. 
That's two options, right? Repent, don't repent. Lordship, non-lordship. That's messed up. That's messed up. I only have about 40 of these, so don't worry. Yes, it is necessary to confront a rebellious believer at church, but it's optional if I'm afraid or don't know how to do it. That's a good one for, actually, Pastor John, that'd be a good one for disobeying any necessary command. I'm not responsible to do something if I don't know how to do it. Even better, let Pastor do it. I offended someone years ago at the back of the church. I've told you this before as well. The person was very upset that I didn't give the gospel out to somebody who was visiting here in my sermon. So I said, why don't you go do it right now? They're still standing there. Whoa! That was like getting slapped across the face by that look I got from that person. Can you imagine how dare Pastor John expect me to do it? That's his job. What are we paying him for anyways? <laughs> told you I shouldn't be preaching tonight. Or this one. Uh, when it comes to evangelism, I never tell unbelievers that they're going to hell. Um, I will occasionally if I sense that they can take it. And last but not least, here's one that comes from Growing Kids God's Way that we had drummed into us as parents in training years ago. It's uh, necessary, yes, I know it's necessary for my child to obey me on the first time and be corrected for disobedience. But it's optional until after the third warning. I don't know where that arbitrary three strikes, I guess you're out, that type of thing came up. And I had one parent outside this church tell me years ago, uh, I don't discipline my children because I believe in God's mercy. So under that introduction number two, when necessity impacts optionality, necessity loses. Necessity gets trumped by optionality. Spiritual necessity goes bye-bye, in other words, as necessity drowns in the rising floodwaters of optional pragmatism in the church today. You know what pragmatism is? A good definition of pragmatism is only do what works and only do what causes you to avoid suffering. That's what pragmatism is. Only do what works and do what causes you to avoid suffering. God wants us happy, rich, healthy, and having fun in this life. That's not Christianity when Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. So in your outline, you can see as you travel down the outline to Mark number 2 there. That's where we're at, Mark number 2. Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian to go to grow in holiness, and uh, that's right here in Philippians 1.6. But you can just hear the but, right? Yes, I know Christian, Christians are to suffer continuously, 1 Peter 1.6, since it is necessary, first-class first condition. But, but, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. That's kind of irrelevant. Necessary is what? Necessary. Isn't that number two under Mark number two? Necessary versus optionality. Suffering is not optional for the believer. That means it is necessary. That's what it means. So let's fill in the blanks under Mark number two just to review. I got ahead of myself. Number one under Mark number two. Necessary means suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. Suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. 
Number two, under mark number two, necessary versus optionality, suffering is not optional for the believer. I think you got the evidence given to you in that introduction that whenever you see something that we're commanded to do in the Bible, you never want to read a command and then think in your mind or verbalize the word, but, right? Don't want to do that. Number three, most believers that I have found by experience hold to the false notion that they're free in Christ to do almost anything not commanded against us and in the Bible, and I spent a couple sermons the last couple Sunday nights answering that one. The false notion that we're free in Christ to not do what is necessary. We looked at freedom versus enslavement, number four, number five. Many believers at much cost to their spiritual health reject the necessity of suffering for Christ, again, believing they are free to avoid it. Necessary becomes optional. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. It is necessary. Let's go on to new material. Number 6. Necessary means suffering is not pointless nor unreasonable. Let's write that down. Suffering is not pointless nor unreasonable. Number 6. Necessary. That's what it means. Let's do the opposite of not pointless nor unreasonable. Let's write the positive aspect to that, then under number six. Necessary means all suffering serves a purpose in a believer's life. There are statements we can utter that we hold to that are creeds. They're belief systems. They're philosophies. They come out with small little quick statements that we can mumble under our breath. And one of the great ones that negates the necessary aspect of suffering is this one. Write it down. This is pointless. This doesn't make any sense. Those two statements negate this point number six. This is pointless and this doesn't make any sense. That's an attack against necessity. If God says it's necessary, how can it be pointless? Does it make sense that a God would say this? I want you to suffer always. It's necessary, but it doesn't make any sense. If it's necessary from God's point of view, there is an intent behind it. Write that down under number six. Necessity means divine intent. He's after something. Who says he has to clue you and I into it? Why would he have to do that? Necessary is God's will. He's got some reasons why he wants you and I to suffer. Again, in verse 6, we're not rejoicing in the suffering. We're rejoicing in our salvation and the fact that we're going to heaven, verses 3 and 4, while we suffer. We don't have to personally like the agony we're going through. I don't like real bad suffering. You don't have to either. Yet it is necessary, which means it's not pointless. When we utter false statements over and over again in our minds or mumble them under our breasts, we're negating truth. We're establishing a habit of error in our thinking. This doesn't make any sense. Why am I still here? Why am I doing this? Why am I going there? This doesn't make any sense. This is pointless. I don't understand this. I don't understand this. Those are statements that just destroy necessity. It's an attack against God. It makes God basically a capricious idiot who uh, basically throws a dart for no reason other than random non-intent. God's blindfolded up there and he tosses one at you, suffering. Doesn't make any sense. How could it? I just threw it blind. It's a powerful word in verse 6. Necessary means it's not pointless. 
We always come back on that one, though. Yeah, but I don't understand. Who says you have to understand? God's not talking to you and I. <coughs> he doesn't have to tell us everything. We never did that as parents. Our kids were young, even as they're old. We don't tell them everything. Since when do our kids have to know everything? Right? Okay, number seven. <coughs> what is necessary to be accomplished in our lives through suffering? Now, the Bible doesn't tell you specifically why you're going through what you're going through, if it's not related to sin. If sin is wrecking you, then that, there's your reason for suffering. Sin wrecks Christians if we don't repent. And, uh, but we're not talking about suffering related to sin. But he's not telling you specifically in your context why you're having the trouble you're having, okay? He's not going to do that. But he does give us categories of what's beneficial for every Christian when they suffer. In fact, the Bible is pretty good on this. It gives us six basic reasons for all Christians in general why God wants suffering for you. Six reasons. And I think these are valuable. Valuable reasons. So let's look at them. Number one at the bottom. Suffering is necessary, number one, to humble believers and make them teachable. We probably won't get past this one tonight. But six major reasons why God says it's necessary for you to suffer. There's no reasons given in verse 6 other than verse 7 when we get to it that it's a faith-proving thing. And we'll deal with that seventh reason when we get to it in verse 7. But um, this is number one. These aren't in any order whatsoever. It's just it, suffering is meant to humble believers and make them teachable. Now underneath that, let's preface this with an important rule. When I say believers, when the Bible talks about suffering with believers, let's just start with this. Only godly believers. Okay? Ungodly, rebellious believers learn nothing from suffering. And we'll see some verses that prove that. Okay? Godly believers. Then. So when we say suffering humbles believers and makes them teachable, that would only be a humble, teachable, growing Christian who needs more humility and more teachability. Okay? When you look at suffering for Israel early on in the Old Testament, they learned from it. When you look at suffering later on in Israel in the apostate age of Israel with the major and minor prophets, they're learning nothing. They just get angry at it. It's a good read on the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Early on, they learned and repented. Remember all the judgments of judges? God brought invaders and all sorts of terrible things, and then they'd cry out to God and they'd repent. And then God would restore them. Remember that with the Judges, Book of Judges? When you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's none of that crying out and repenting anymore. So the more deeper into rebellion and apostasy God's people get, the less they learn. So really, when we're talking about humbling believers and making them teachable, now aren't those good things? I mean, despite the world that says we should love ourselves, kiss ourselves on the mirror and everything else, uh, humility and teachableness is something, those are virtues I would want, so I guess we need suffering for that. Where do we learn about this? Deuteronomy 8, turn over there, start in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm only going to do kind of like a speed, jet speeding tour through these, hypersonic missile to use the current terrors over China and Russia missiles. We'll do a hypersonic intercontinental ballistic missile movement through these verses. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. God talking to the people of Israel. Look what he says. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry. Deuteronomy 8.3. So what was the purpose of them being hungry? Oh. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand. That's teachableness. Suffering causes us to be humbled if we're godly and helps us to understand and be teachable. Understand what? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So the teachableness, this is extremely important, this is a golden verse in the Old Testament. The teachableness is not about, oh, I'm suffering because of my this or that, so I need more of this or that. No, it's humbling and suffering so that we will turn more to God's word. Not so that we will get food or whatever. It wasn't, oh, I, I'm starving so I will appreciate food. Well, it was true concerning the manna, but the ultimate reason was so that they would turn to God and what comes out of his mouth, which is truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. In the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12. God had to humble Paul with suffering. Right? So, if God humbled Paul and he had to suffer in order to be humbled, would we be exempt from that? We don't need it, but he did. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God gave Paul, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. It isn't thorn in the flesh. It is, in the Greek, thorn because of the flesh. Okay, this is a satanic messenger, and Satan can't get into our old natures or our bodies. Horrible translation. It says right there it's a messenger of Satan. So it wasn't Coke bottle glasses, as one theologian says in one of my commentaries. God gave Paul heart of seeing. He was almost blind. That's not this. This is a messenger of Satan. It was a demonic attack. To torment me, to keep me from what? Oh, so Satan's actually used, it must frustrate him greatly, and demons must be frustrated by that. God uses Satan and demons to cause us to grow in humility. The opposite of humility is exalting oneself right there. Now, Paul doesn't like suffering or demonic attack any more than the rest of us. For three times God asked, he asked God to take it away in verse 8. And what does he say? He says in verse 9 back to him, go back to grace living as we're learning in 1 Timothy 1-2. Grace, mercy, and peace. My grace is sufficient for you. So grace power works and perfects in weakness. What kind of weakness? We're talking about the weakness that occurs when we're attacked and under suffering. It, it is weakness in ourselves. That's what we're talking about here. So that we realize we're nothing. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I mean, weakness and weaknesses is mentioned repeatedly here. It's astounding how many times Paul mentions weakness here. Um, 
Back earlier in the chapter, I think he mentions weakness in verse 5. My weaknesses in verse 5. Number 2 is in verse 9, perfected in weakness. Number 3 in verse 9, I will rather boast about my... In weaknesses is no power, by the way, not little power. It's impotence in the Greek. In verse 10, fourth time used, I will well content with weaknesses. Fifth time in verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So God wants you to be less self-sufficient and weak in yourself, and he uses even demonic attack to produce that. That's incredible. So now we know this number one reason why God brings suffering, even demonic attack potentially, into our lives is to humble us, make us weak in ourselves and powerful in the Lord so that we'll trust in Christ. Do you want that? Do you want to grow more in the Lord? Do you want to be less reliable on yourself? Do you want a better prayer life? Then what do you need? Suffering. Is suffering necessary? Two verses and then we'll leave. Uh, Job... Going backwards again, left, right, left, right. Job 36. Now, I find it very interesting in Job 36 that uh, we get um, in Job 36. A statement by Elihu, which is correct. Uh, Job 36, verse 13. For the godless in heart lay up in anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. Do you notice that? Elihu had a lot of good stuff to say. He was the only one that didn't get whacked by God at the end of the story, by the way. There were four friends, not three. Remember that? At the end of the book, only three were corrected. Elihu wasn't one of them. So look at verse 13. Notice, and this is where I said earlier in the sermon that if you're godless then really suffering is not going to help you. Because look at verse 13. The godless in heart lay up anger. So what when a person gets bound by God or experiences suffering, they don't cry out for help, and they get angry. It's a great read on when, if and when you suffer, you get really angry or you stop praying. That means you are in verse 13 what? Godless, exactly. So suffering actually reveals our spiritual condition, which, hey, that's down number six when we get to it. Next time. Lastly tonight, verse 15. He delivers the afflicted in their affliction. That's kind of an odd statement. How can you be delivered? That's like he got delivered from murder as being murdered. He got delivered from fire as he was burning up in fire. How can you be delivered from affliction in affliction. Well, that's 2 Corinthians 1 that we'll see later next time, that he helps us while the affliction continues. So obviously the delivering isn't the removal of suffering, necessarily, but it's an opening of their ear in time of oppression. So the deliverance is the opening of the ear. What's that? I'm hearing and I'm obeying. I'm teachable. Okay, you've done it. This happens when you spank little children. Spanking doesn't make them godly, but it can make their hearts submissive to teaching. Okay, I just spanked you. Now are you going to listen to me? Yes, Danny. That's verse 15. Opens their ears. So you can imagine a parent who never spanks their children, a Christian parent, is closing the ears more and more and making them more hard-hearted and rebellious. See? 
It's a great thing. We don't want suffering, but hey, instead of whining and saying, I don't understand this, this is pointless, this doesn't make any sense, I don't understand this, why don't we just say this one? You're humbling me, you're humbling me and making me more, more teachable if I'm godly. But if I'm getting angry and I stop praying, then I know I'm godless. So not only has this suffering revealed my true nature in ways I would never see before. What a tell! Is this optional? Is humility optional? Is teachableness optional? I guess we need the necessity of suffering. But, no, no buts. Thank you, Father, very much for your word. We leave it now with you, with just one of the six, and we're starting to travel down this incredible road of showing the value of suffering, any kind of suffering. And Lord, may we yield in humility and teachableness. In your name I pray, amen.